In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 16, the William Blunt Conspiracy, when a United States Senator helped organize a brazen land grab scheme only to flee his own impeachment trial. July 3rd, 1797. Summers in Philadelphia often made the Senate chambers unbearably stuffy. No help to Senator William Blunt, who was bored of the ongoing debate over parchment taxes. He decided to treat himself to some fresh air, taking a stroll around the congressional building. With a confident strut in his step, Blunt felt better than he had in a long time. After years of debt, he'd recently concocted a secret plan to fix all his money problems once and for all. On his walk, Senator Blunt crossed paths with President John Adams' secretary, Samuel Malcolm. Blunt politely asked what business he had at Congress, but Malcolm's curt reply indicated the matter was private. He pushed past the senator, leaving Blunt to continue his walk, albeit a little perplexed. When Blunt did return to the Senate, he found pandemonium on the chamber's floor. All eyes turned to him. The clerk was at the lectern. He was reading a letter signed by Senator Blunt himself, chock full of incriminating details. It appeared Blunt had conspired with British and Native American forces to attack Louisiana and Florida, which, at the time, were Spanish territories. Blunt's secret plan was not so secret anymore. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. Today, we're looking at the unraveling of William Blunt, a land speculator turned senator in the late 1700s. A failed conspiracy to get himself out of debt would trigger the first impeachment trial in United States history. We'll dive into all of that right after this. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Being born into a wealthy North Carolina plantation family meant William Blunt was poised to follow his father's footsteps. Rather than receive a formal education, as a young man, he learned the family trades from his father, Jacob, 
producing cotton and tobacco, and of course, land speculation. In the 1700s, America's vast land was more or less seen as free for the taking. Never mind the fact that whole tribes of people were already living there. Businessmen could stake their claims on huge swaths of land for pennies. Once the land was all bought up, demand obviously would skyrocket, and so would prices. Those cheap, undeveloped acres could be sold off for a fortune. Throughout the 1760s, Jacob Blunt had acquired thousands of acres of land that proved to be very profitable. Young William learned the tricks of the trade quickly. By the time he was a grown man in the 1780s, he and his brother John Gray were buying up land of their own in the West, mostly on credit. It put them in massive debt for the time being, but they had the political influence to make sure their investment would pay off. William Blunt's political career began in North Carolina's House of Commons in 1781. He used the position to advocate for his number one political priority, his own self-interest. He supported any bills that would open state lands for public purchase, which would be a massive boon for land speculators. Unsurprisingly, Blunt championed the Land Grab Act, a bill that released tracts of land west of the Appalachian Mountains for settlement. Blunt was careful to make sure the land he owned in that area would be included in the bill. As more settlers moved west, they'd need somewhere to live, and Blunt could sell off his holdings at massive profits. A conflict of interest, to be sure. But at the time, only property owners could vote, and they had little concern about schemes that would help raise property values. For now, Blunt's self-interest went unchecked. In fact, in March of 1787, the 38-year-old Blunt was chosen as one of North Carolina's representatives at the Constitutional Convention. Helping to draft the new Constitution was one of the highest honors a politician could dream of. Blunt, though, was doubtful anything good would come out of the heated debates. He stayed briefly before heading home to North Carolina. He came back to Philadelphia just in time to reluctantly sign the Constitution. His reluctance to sign was bold, considering he totally opted out of helping to draft it. But like everything Blunt did, it was a self-serving move more than an ideological one. He worried that a strong federal government would usher in stronger federal regulations, which could negatively impact his investments. Just as importantly, Blunt wanted to protect his influence in North Carolina. Southerners were concerned that being in league with Northerners might affect their way of life, particularly on the issue of slavery. But being too supportive of the new Constitution might upset his beloved voter base. Ultimately, Blunt was persuaded to sign. After an election to the state Senate the next year, he played a pivotal role in getting the document ratified by North Carolina in 1789. After joining the Union, William Blunt quickly moved on to his next venture, urging the legislature to cede state land west of the Appalachians to the federal government. He argued it would be an easy way for the state to pay off its federal debts. Of course, the part Senator Blunt didn't advertise was that he was heavily invested in that land. Always the savvy businessman, he believed federal investment in the region would raise the value of his real estate. Either way, his argument worked. 
The land was surrendered, and in the spring of 1790, it became known as the Southwest Territory. Shortly afterwards, President George Washington appointed Blunt to be the territory's first governor, as well as the superintendent of Indian affairs. It was a great honor for Blunt, and of course, a great business opportunity. In a letter to his brother, he said that the job was, quote, of great importance to our Western speculators. In October of 1790, William Blunt moved his family to what is now Piney Flats, Tennessee, ready to begin the long process of turning the wild frontier into an organized society. But the rough-and-tumble frontiersmen were wary of the highborn Easterner. Blunt tried to appease them by appointing local residents to government positions, which helped gain their trust. But even for someone as ambitious as Blunt, being their governor was no easy task. The frontiersmen wanted military support to do battle against the Native Americans. But the Federal War Department was advocating for relatively peaceful negotiations with the tribes. That's the tactic Blunt went with. In 1791, he negotiated the Treaty of Holston with the Cherokee Nation. While the treaty didn't bring long-term peace between Native Americans and the frontiersmen who were stealing their land, it forged an important alliance for Blunt. He could use his friendship with those Native American tribes to gain an upper hand in land speculation. Over the next few years, Blunt borrowed increasingly large amounts of money to buy acreage in the territory. As governor, he was sure he could find a way to jack up the price. And as luck would have it, his brother and business partner Thomas was elected to U.S. Congress in 1793. With their combined political power, the Blunt brothers had a million different ways to make sure their investments panned out. As the population in the Southwest Territory grew, Blunt started the process of making it an official state. Always eyeing a profit, he suspected his western land would be more valuable if it was located in a state rather than a territory. To qualify, the territory had to have at least 60,000 residents. In 1795, Blunt took a census, and the Southwest Territory had well over the minimum 77,000 residents. Blunt submitted a proposal to Congress, and the next year, Tennessee was admitted to the Union. Blunt was keen to run for governor for the new state, but he faced stiff competition. A popular frontiersman, John Savier, was running as well. Instead of trying to beat Savier, Blunt shrewdly ran for senator instead. He won, becoming one of the first two senators from the state of Tennessee. But while Blunt was becoming a political success, financially he was in ruin. The market for Western lands hadn't taken off like he thought it would. In fact, by 1795, the market had completely collapsed. According to some, after the conclusion of the War of the Pyrenees between France and Spain that year, land speculators feared that the Spanish territory of Louisiana might be ceded to France as a war prize. This was a problem for the Americans for two reasons. First, they feared that the French would cut off American access to the Mississippi River, an extremely important trade route. Westerners had also dreamed of eventually seizing Spanish lands, and those aspirations would be dashed if the much more intimidating France took control of the region. More than anything, though, the future of the West seemed uncertain, and there is nothing investors like less 
than uncertainty. The value of Western land plummeted, leaving much of Blunt's land worthless. To make matters even worse, he'd bought that land on credit, and now he'd lost all of his investors' money. Soon, the debt collectors were at the door, and Blunt was desperate. With no way to repay them, Blunt claimed senatorial immunity, a fictitious version of diplomatic immunity. But he knew that excuse would only buy him a little time before he was sent to debtor's prison. He would have to offload his real estate to pay off some of his debts. Although with land prices in the toilet, that wouldn't be an easy job. He tried to sell it off to British investors, buying up newspaper ads across the pond full of misleading claims about the value of American land. It didn't work. With his creditors persistent as ever, Blunt needed a new plan. And fast. If he didn't act and the French indeed cut off access to the Mississippi River, he might be barred from accessing his western lands at all. So William Blunt did what he did best. Schemed all in hopes that he could save his western lands from being further devalued. Coming up, Senator Blunt concocts an aspirational and dangerous plan to get out of debt. Now back to the story. By 1795, Tennessee Senator William Blunt's investments in land west of the Mississippi had failed miserably. Not only had he bought the land on credit, but the speculation market had since collapsed. They were worth but a fraction of what he'd paid. But that was a small issue in comparison to the looming possibility that the Gulf Coast land, which was under Spanish control, might soon be ceded to France as a war prize. Such a handover would create further uncertainty and devalue Blunt's land even more. Truly a worst-case scenario. But Blunt was craftiest when his back was against a wall, and he had a pretty good idea of how to get out of this particular jam. With the help of his colleague John Chisholm, a Tennessee resident with close ties to Native American tribes, Blunt came up with a plan. He believed the solution was to assist Great Britain in gaining control of Spanish-held Florida and Louisiana. If the British took control of the territory, that would eliminate the possibility that Spain might cede it to France as a consolation prize, which Blunt was sure would further depress the value of his already cheapened land. More still, he wanted the British to control these lands rather than the French to ensure that American land speculators like himself were still able to cross over the Mississippi River to the west. At that time, diplomatic ties between the U.S. and British were slightly warmer than between the U.S. and France. So, using a militia of frontiersmen and Native Americans in combination with the British Navy, Blunt planned for a coordinated attack on New Orleans, New Madrid, and Pensacola. In exchange for their help, Blunt convinced the British to allow them free trade and access to the Mississippi and New Orleans. The plan wasn't without risks. Inciting attacks with militia forces on Spain's mines would be dangerous, but Blunt was desperate and willing to gamble. He immediately got to work convincing powerful frontiersmen to join his cause. Meanwhile, John Chisholm and an interpreter, James Carey, worked on convincing native tribes. And Blunt enlisted another former business partner, Nicholas Romaine, to go to England and drum up British support. 
It was still in the early stages, but in Blunt's mind, his careful plotting could just lead to his salvation. Or at least, avoiding bankruptcy. By the early months of 1797, William Blunt and his co-conspirators were well on their way. From the disparate ranks of frontiersmen, Native Americans, and British soldiers, they'd forged an unbreakable coalition. Or so they thought. In reality, the plan was a mess. Blunt's cohort was hastily organized and rather unfriendly. Allegedly, Nicholas Romaine disliked John Chisholm, who he deemed low-born. Romaine was said to believe that only gentlemen should be involved in intrigue. Meanwhile, Chisholm had a fiery personality, which made it likely that he was never truly under Blunt's control. Chisholm's intense hatred of the Spanish was fueling his involvement in the plan more than anything else, which made him more of a liability than an asset. Things weren't any better once Romaine left for England. The British officials he was supposed to be pitching the plan to were lukewarm on the whole idea. It was starting to seem like the scheme would never fully come together. But the dysfunctional Motley crew pushed past their differences and drummed up enough interest in the coup to move forward. Self-interested land speculators and Americans with visions of expansion signed on. Maybe the plan could work after all. Then, the worst happened. Or at least, the worst for Blunt. In the early summer of 1797, an inebriated James Carey exposed a letter which Blunt had written him to a government official near Knoxville, Tennessee. Of all the hands their correspondence could have fallen into, these were certainly the worst. The government agent gave it to a colonel in Knoxville, who then immediately passed it up through the pipeline. On the receiving end was none other than Timothy Pickering, the freshly minted Secretary of State. Needless to say, Pickering didn't sit on the letter. The secretary had long believed that Blunt's actions as a land speculator were unbecoming for a representative of the government. In just a few weeks, the letter made its way to the desk of President John Adams himself. Who was furious? How dare a senator conspire with foreign powers behind his back? He immediately sought the attorney general's advice. Was this letter proof of an impeachable crime? The answer was an irrefutable yes. Adams sent the letter to Congress, expecting the legislature to be as outraged by Blunt's actions as he was. Luckily, Congress was in session, meaning Senator Blunt was within arm's reach to be questioned. On July 3, 1797, Blunt returned from a walk around the Congress building to find commotion on the Senate floor. Everyone stared as he entered the chamber. The clerk was told to reread the letter that he had just revealed to the senators. The secretary read Blunt's words aloud, and with each turn of phrase, it was evident that Blunt, or whoever had written the letter, knew full well of its implications should it fall into the wrong hands. The author wrote that, A discovery of the plan would prevent the success and much injure all parties concerned. When you have read this letter over three times, then burn it. Clearly, James Carey had not followed the instructions to destroy the letter. After hearing this, Vice President Thomas Jefferson, who presided over the Senate, asked Blunt point-blank if he had written this letter. After composing himself, though, 
Blunt didn't come clean. While he admitted to having written a letter to James Carey, he said he couldn't verify if he'd sent this particular letter without looking through his personal notes, which were at his house. He was given a day to collect his papers and come back with a better answer. The senator did not appear on the floor the next day. In his place, he sent a letter requesting more time. The Senate demanded Blunt appear the following day, but once again, he was a no-show. He sent another letter in his place, this time claiming he did not remember writing Carrie recently, and that in his entire life, he had never written a letter with the intent to, quote, injure the United States. The next day, Blunt was once again absent from the Senate because he was fleeing the Capitol. Unfortunately, he didn't get very far. Federal officers stopped him and his North Carolina-bound ship before it had even left the dock. They seized both the ship and all of Blunt's property, including his personal papers. While he awaited the fallout from Congress, Blunt tried to mitigate his role in the scandal. He circulated copies of the Carey letter through a small newspaper editorial where he again denied writing it. He also questioned whether the plan outlined in the letter could actually be deemed criminal if it had ultimately been carried through. However, Blunt's tone was decidedly different with his constituents. In letters to friends back in Tennessee, Blunt admitted to writing the Carey letter. He hoped his candor would give the impression his intentions were good. He claimed he only wanted to improve the lives of Tennessee's residents, even if in reality, the plan was created solely to improve his investments. Not all of Senator Blunt's friends were so easily fooled. George Washington, a former ally, was furious. He had appointed Blunt governor of the Southwest Territory, a tremendous honor, and Blunt had betrayed his trust. First Lady Abigail Adams was even more critical. She wrote to a friend that it was unfortunate there were no guillotines in Philadelphia. She called the conspiracy a diabolical plot. Finally, on July 6th, three days after he was initially supposed to appear before the Senate, Blunt presented himself to read a prepared statement promising he'd cooperate. The legislature voted to question him the following day. When they convened the next morning, Congress was overflowing with visitors. All of Philadelphia apparently wanted to see Blunt's interrogation. When he appeared, the president pro tempore of the Senate asked the same simple question. Had Blunt written the letter? The underlying question was, had Senator Blunt conspired against his own government and his own country in a desperate, dangerous plot to save his own land investments? A question that did not receive a clear response. Blunt's lawyers asked to postpone the inquiry for three days so they could prepare. For those keeping track, now four days has passed since Blunt was first asked whether he'd written the letter. And he still couldn't answer. The Senate debated the postponement with many of them angry about Blunt's evasiveness. While the debate dragged on, a messenger from the House of Representatives appeared. He announced that the House, by a margin of 41 to 30, had voted to begin impeachment hearings against Blunt. The House also called for the immediate expulsion of Blunt from Congress. He would be held on bond until his impeachment trial, his escape attempt, 
had not been forgotten. The House would levy the United States Constitution, the very document Blunt had signed only a decade before, against him. Two clauses in particular were brought to the table in consideration for Blunt's actions, expulsion and impeachment. Expulsion meant that the Senate could punish a member on the grounds of disorderly behavior. Certainly, Blunt's strategizing with foreign governments without approval fell into this category. And impeachment meant that a civil officer could be removed on the grounds of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Blunt's actions plainly applied to both clauses. So despite almost 20 years in politics, a two-thirds vote could kill his career with haste. The fate of William Blunt lies in the hands of the congressional vote. Up next, now back to the story. If there had been any doubt that Congress would remove Senator William Blunt from office, their vote all but confirmed their position. Far beyond the two-thirds majority needed, the Senate voted 25 to 1 to expel him the next day. Since he had a penchant for fleeing, they held the former senator on bond, set at $20,000, worth nearly half a million dollars today. Luckily for Blunt, he only had to pay a portion of the bond to be released, $100. For three days until the proceedings resumed, he was a free man. To prove himself trustworthy as ever, Blunt promptly fled the Capitol, again. In addition to avoiding his impeachment, the senator was also trying to slip away from his creditors. He still hadn't repaid his debts for his bad land investment. He headed to North Carolina to reunite with his wife, keeping a low profile by traveling on back roads. But he didn't manage to get very far. On the way, he accidentally bumped into an acquaintance outside of Stanton, Virginia. Word of the blunt sighting spread quickly. He was soon discovered in Lexington and brought back to Stanton for holding. But Blunt was as slippery as always. He managed to get a letter delivered to the authorities in Stanton, confirming that he wasn't a wanted man. He'd been released on bail. However, that message failed to mention that the senator was expected to testify in the Capitol the next day. So, Blunt was let go. Free again, he continued to North Carolina, where he hid out with his wife for several months. The House of Representatives, meanwhile, continued their investigation into Blunt and his associates. They questioned two of his co-conspirators, Chisholm and Romaine. Both soon admitted to their participation in the conspiracy. And more, Blunt's own papers and notes, which had been seized by federal authorities, were submitted as evidence. Many of the documents described the conspiracy in detail. It seemed the proof was insurmountable. Blunt followed the news from his hideout, and what he saw in the press was surprisingly optimistic. Political parties were just starting to form in the late 1790s, and partisan tensions were becoming more divided than ever. President John Adams, who'd called for the impeachment, was from the Federalist Party. Blunt was on the other side of the aisle, a faction that was starting to be known as the Republicans. Other Republicans who were fed up with President Adams were sympathetic to the expelled senator. It seemed the general public, especially those in Tennessee, actually supported him. Apparently, his constituents had been hoodwinked into believing he was innocent, or at least that he wasn't a traitor. 
Buoyed by the news, Blunt returned to Knoxville, Tennessee in September 1797, where a parade and celebration were held in his honor. Despite the escalating situation in Philadelphia, Blunt was popular at home. He had the backing of many powerful Western frontiersmen, including Tennessee Senator Andrew Jackson. The idea was even floated that Blunt should run for Senate again. But while Tennessee welcomed Blunt with open arms, the United States Congress was sharpening its arguments. When the House reconvened in January 1798, Blunt's impeachment proceedings were the first order of business. Though the 48-year-old Blunt had already been expelled from Congress, there was still a desire to drive his punishment home officially. It didn't take long. On the 28th of January, the House charged Blunt with five articles of impeachment. They dissected Blunt's conspiracy in detail, noting that not only did Blunt's actions break one treaty, they defied multiple. With the House's charges, the impeachment trial went to the Senate. Eleven managers were appointed to argue the case against Blunt. All the while, Blunt stayed in Tennessee. Call it hiding, or call it rebranding, but Blunt was shaping himself a new image, protector of the Tennessee frontiersmen against the corrupt federal government. The locals ate it up. So in Philadelphia, Senate proceedings began in early February of 1798. After a couple of weeks of discussion, there was an undeniable consensus that Blunt should be present to testify. To wrangle him back to Philadelphia, the doorkeeper of the Senate, James Mathers, was summoned. While his usual duties included screening visitors to the Senate chamber, now Mathers was given the title of Sergeant-at-Arms. By early March, a formal summons was issued. With it in hand, Mathers was sent to Tennessee. His task was to inform Blunt that his trial would begin in nine months, when Congress reconvened for the next session in December. When the doorkeeper turned sergeant finally made it to Tennessee, he was politely welcomed into Blunt's home and even treated to a nice warm meal. The Southern hospitality was a facade, of course. Blunt made it clear that he had no intention of returning to Philadelphia. Mathers had little power to argue with him. He returned to Philadelphia empty-handed. If Blunt wouldn't cooperate, the impeachment trial would just have to continue without the defendant. On December 17, 1798, the Senate's Court of Impeachment was convened. Their defendant chair was empty. William Blunt was too busy in Tennessee serving as Speaker of the State Senate. He'd been elected earlier that year, despite the impeachment proceedings against him in Philadelphia. So, in the Capitol, Blunt's attorneys appeared on his behalf. Their task would be no small undertaking. They'd have to argue their client's lack of culpability to a crowd of senators, some of whom already held strong convictions about land speculation in the West. Federalists in particular. As historian Christopher Wray explained, simply put, the lack of land for sale in the Southwest Territory turned Federalist leaders against the Territory meaning Federalist senators weren't keen to sympathize with Blunt, who was personally responsible for hoarding all that land. So Blunt's legal eagles took another route. 
they argued that the Senate simply did not have the jurisdiction to try him. Their argument was twofold and based on small technicalities in the still brand new Constitution. First, they asserted that William Blunt was not a civil officer as described in the impeachment clause. And second, they argued that because Blunt was expelled from Congress in July, he was no longer an officer of the federal government at all, and therefore not subject to the jurisdiction of the Senate. While those seem like some unconvincing loopholes, Blunt and his attorneys were about to get extremely lucky. The Republican forces in the Senate were inclined to oppose the impeachment, simply based on party lines. Blunt was a Republican. The rest of the party wanted to stay loyal to their own. And by defending Blunt, the Republicans were able to stick one on the Federalist President Adams himself, who called for the impeachment in the first place. All this considered... On January 11, 1789, by a vote of 14 to 11, the Senate passed the following resolution. The court is of the opinion that the matter alleged in the plea of the defendant is sufficient in law to show that this court ought not to hold jurisdiction of the said impeachment and that the said impeachment is dismissed. Despite the overwhelming evidence of guilt, Blunt was not convicted bitter party lines had saved him. In the end, the impeachment proceedings had been larger than just the sordid and likely treasonous wheelings and dealings of William Blunt. Rather than seek true justice, politicians on both sides of the aisle saw it as an opportunity to grandstand and broadly attack the ideologies of the opposing party. Federalists had thought it was an opportunity to air their grievances with land speculation in the West. For their Republican counterparts, it was a chance to prove they had more political sway. If the Federalists had hoped to make an example out of William Blunt, the effort had failed almost as miserably as Blunt's own investments. On January 14, 1799, it was all over. Vice President Thomas Jefferson, a Republican himself, officially dismissed the case, ending any lingering questions over impeachment. Blunt's national reputation may have been tainted, granted he was neither innocent nor guilty, but he remained popular in Tennessee. He would have likely served the state government for many years to come. But in March of 1800, an illness spread through the capital of Knoxville. Sitting on his veranda the evening of March 15th, 50-year-old Blunt complained of having a slight chill. Six days later, on March 21st, 1800, he died. In death, William Blunt reached a peculiar status. Disgraced senator, shoddy entrepreneur, and beloved local icon. Many would argue that he was a financially ruthless opportunist, and many agree his conspiratorial plan could have dragged the young nation into another war. And yet, Blunt was never truly punished for his actions. Perhaps... Despite his reputation for plotting, scheming, and fleeing, Blunt's real legacy is as a partisan pawn, a man who was impeached and acquitted based on sheer political expediency. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Political Scandal number 15, 
Alger Hiss, and the ping-pong of accusations against the diplomats' loyalty to American democracy. For more information on the Blunt Conspiracy, amongst the many sources we used, we found William H. Masterson's biography, William Blunt, helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>